Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, find out why we celebrate Christmas on December 25th and the differences between each of the four Christmas Masses. The show wraps up with Bishop answering questions from listeners. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our Bishop, and Happy Advent, Bishop. Same to you, Kyle. I love this joyful season. Yeah. A lot of people might be saying Merry Christmas this time of year, but we're, we're holding out. Yes, hold out till midnight Christmas. Okay. <laughs> you, don't, you don't do it for like a Christmas Eve? Once it's dark. Okay. Once it's dark. <laughs> I like it. I'll tell you why in this show. Okay. Because we're going to talk a little bit about the different masses of Christmas. Yeah, I don't think I realize this and maybe until last year it came up with something i never noticed that mass readings and masses were different other than like we try to gear this one towards families and kids or yeah midnight mass you throw all the bells and whistles at it and make it a a lot of fun but uh when you look at the uh the roman missal there are really four different uh masses for the solemnity of Christmas, the solemnity of the nativity of the Lord. You know, there's a vigil mass, Mm -hmm. there's a mass during the night, there's mass at dawn, early morning, Mm -hmm. and then there's mass during Christmas day. And each of those four masses have different prayers and different readings. Okay. Depending on which mass you go to, you'll hear something different, and you'll have pray differently. Are you supposed to collect them all? Like go to go to all the masses? All see, four? See, yeah, <laughs> you're most welcome to. Okay. Our priests usually have yeah. all four. Um, technically, though, I mean, I, I'd like to explain this, but maybe I want to talk a little bit more about the origin of this feast. Mm-hmm. If you go to the vigil mass, which a lot of people do, mm-hmm. like if you go to four or five o'clock on mm-hmm. Christmas Eve. If you pay attention to the prayers and even the readings, it's really still anticipating Christmas. Huh. Um, I mean, it fulfills the uh, the holy day obligation. Whew, okay. So let's get that out of the way. <laughs> it's but, a confession. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really not uh, celebrating that Christ is born because it's still looking forward to the celebration of his birth. Okay. But if you go at night, midnight or Later at night, Mm -hmm. that's the second mass. It's called uh, at the mass during the night. Okay. And that doesn't have to be a midnight mass. They're they're giving you a lot of options here. Exactly. But it it, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't do this like early though. Okay. It would be after it's dark. Mm -hmm. Okay. So anyhow, let's talk a little bit about the origins of Christmas. Um, You know, there's some controversy over this and I think it helps to think about how did the liturgical year even develop in the church? Okay. Um, We know from research, you know, and a lot of research that at the beginning, let's say early on the late first century and the second century, that the Christians would observe Sunday as the Lord's day, the Passover of the Lord the day of the Lord's resurrection, his passage from death to life. That's the earliest liturgical feast is Sunday. Uh But then they also began around that time to celebrate annually in the second century 
an annual Passover. The Greek word is Pascha, P-A-S-C-H-A. We translate that as Easter, Mm -hmm. okay? The Pascha. That was celebrated way before we ever celebrated Christmas. They would celebrate Easter. They would celebrate this Passover of the Lord from death to life. They would do it every Sunday, but also annually in a bigger way with Easter. They would even then celebrate the 50 days after Easter as a special time all the way up to Pentecost, which we still do today. We mm-hmm. know that from the beginning of the third century, at least from the beginning of the third century, they had this 50 days of the Easter season. Okay, So that's the earliest part of the liturgical year that was celebrated. Now, also in that time, and I think third century, maybe second, beginning the second century, but definitely in the third century, they would celebrate the anniversaries of the deaths of martyrs. They didn't celebrate birthdays. They celebrated the day when a martyr died. Hmm. That was considered their birthday into eternity. Sure. So they even used the word birthday, dies natalis. Dies natalis in Latin. In Italian, they call Christmas Natale. Okay. Okay, so it comes from the Latin, which means birth. Uh, and sure. in, and you kind of see the connection with Spanish, Navidad. Christmas has a different origin, which means mass of Christ. But, but in any event, I'm getting off the track <laughs> here. Um, but they're birthdays in eternity. Yeah. Now, by the fourth century, they started to celebrate also a season prior to Easter as a, a longer season of preparation. We call that season Lent. Mm-hmm. And it was began as a time when candidates would be preparing for baptism. They'd be preparing for their initiation into the church mm-hmm. at Easter. And of course, we that developed into the season of Lent, which not only is a time where catechumens prepare for baptism, but now it's a kind of a time of penance for, for all, even those who are already baptized. Sure, But that began really in the fourth century that was after christianity became legal so when you look at the early these earliest centuries christmas wasn't celebrated except we have some evidence that in the third century there would be some commemoration of christ's birth in some places but on different dates Like some might have celebrated a day in March, April, December, whatever. There was no common Christian celebration of Christmas. And it wasn't celebrated everywhere, just in some places. You know, I talked about the celebration of the days that the saints and martyrs died. They didn't celebrate birthdays. But to be honest, in the first 250 years of the church, birthdays weren't emphasized at all not even the birth of Jesus um, because pagans celebrated birthdays. For example, they would have feasts for the emperor's birthday Mm -hmm. or the princes of the kingdom. They would celebrate their birthdays. So the Christians didn't, they celebrated the day of the death or the day of the martyrdom. So that's an interesting thing. Now in time, of course, December 25th was chosen 
as the date for Christians to celebrate the birth of Christ. Even before that, in the east, eastern part of the of the church, the Eastern Empire, they celebrated on January 6th, the Epiphany. So think about this, January 6th, and the word epiphany means manifestation or revelation. Mm-hmm. And what they celebrated was kind of a composite. It was a day that they celebrated the incarnation, okay, that God became man. They celebrated the birth of Christ, the baptism of Christ, and even the wedding feast at Cana, because that revealed Christ, that first miracle. So we know that in the fourth century in the East, this became an important feast, Epiphany, but it was composite, okay? And it was pretty high ranking. I think they would celebrate baptisms on that day too, just like they did at Easter. It was kind of a baptismal feast. It was in the fourth century, not long after that, that in the West, in Rome in particular, we have some evidence of Christians celebrating the birth of Christ on December 25th. Also in the West, they started celebrating January 6th, the Epiphany, but they would focus more on the visit of the three wise men, Mm -hmm. the three magi. So they were doing both? Yeah. Okay. But why did they choose December 25th? And here's where we get into the wide disagreement among scholars. Mm-hmm. And there's really, I could group them under two main opinions. The first opinion, it gets a little complicated, so stay with me. Uh-huh. There was a belief that Christ died on the day of the vernal equinox, in the spring equinox. As you know, that's when the center of the sun is visibly directly above the equator. So when you have the vernal equinox, daytime and nighttime are equal equal duration. Okay. So there was this belief that that's the day that the creation of the world began. And therefore there was this belief that that's also the day that Christ died. And the day that his human life began, his conception. So the day the world began, the day Christ's conception, his life began, and the day of his death. And they fixed that day as March 25th. But in reality, it varies. Right. Okay. So. I'm following you so far. Nine months after March 25th. Uh Uh-huh is December 25th. Notice today we still celebrate the day of Jesus's conception on March 25th. Sure. That's the feast of the Annunciation. Yeah. So that's how this one group says December 25th was chosen. Okay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Now, the second opinion, which is probably more prevalent, is that the Christians took over a pagan feast. Well, what were the Romans celebrating on December 25th? They were celebrating the Dies Natalis. Remember, that means birthday. Okay. Dies Natalis Solis Invicti. 
the day of birth or the birthday of the unconquerable sun, S-U-N, the unconquerable sun. So it was a pagan feast. Well, Christ is our son, Mm -hmm. S-U-N. He's the son of justice. That's one of the titles in the scriptures. The son of salvation who's conquered sin, the darkness, Mm -hmm. you know, of sin and death. This opinion is they took over that that feast of the sun because Christ is our son. Now, notice what time of year this is, too. It's the time of winter solstice. That's when one of the Earth's poles has its maximum tilt away from the sun. Mm -hmm. It's the day with the shortest period of daylight Mm -hmm. and the longest night of the year. And from that day forward, there's more sun, Mm -hmm. more sunlight. So Christ's birth, the light coming into the world, more sun. Right. Also around that time, the Romans celebrated a big festival called the Saturnalia in honor of the god Saturn. Uh And there would be a lot of merrymaking, a lot of carousing, a lot of drinking and eating. And so there are some who say this was like a, a Christian alternative to the Saturnalia okay, to celebrate and make merry at the birth of Christ and uh-huh. not in this pagan way of celebrating. Is there any issues with replacing a pagan holiday? Is that a bad reason to be celebrating Christmas for November 25th? No, or but I think you have December to... December 25th? Yeah, no, I think bec- you just have to keep in mind that um, it's not being syncretistic. In other words... You don't, we don't kind of consider Christ as one of these gods or something. Right. You know, he is right. the true God, true man. But we see other things where, like, various pagan elements could be made Christian, yeah. you know, kind of like they're baptized. I mean, right. you look at different art and things like that, look at the Celtic religion and how parts of that were used by St. Patrick. And mm-hmm. um, so, in a sense, there's a purification of these elements okay all right well why don't we take a break and whenever we come back we can talk more about the christmas masses and some of the differences between them coming up right here on truth and charity with bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by notre dame federal credit union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. We've been talking about the origins of celebrating Christmas, including the date of December 25th. And you also mentioned that there's different masses for different times of the Christmas celebration. And so how do we get from choosing a date to how we celebrate? Yeah, well, let's look at the history. I mean, what was the first thing? The first time that in Rome during the fourth century, the earliest tradition is they would celebrate the liturgy, the mass of Christmas during the day on December 25th. Okay. And the Pope would celebrate a big mass in St. Peter's Basilica Hmm. on December 25th during the day, not Christmas Eve. Uh Uh-huh. It was during the day. It's going to interfere with their parties. <laughs> but listen, that's we still have that mass during the day. Okay. That we celebrate on Christmas Day. But now it's like the least attended mass. Right. More people go Christmas Eve in that. But if you want to get back to the 
the earliest celebration go on Christmas Day. Okay. But not long after, they started celebrating Mass on the night of Christmas Eve. Now, why did they do that? It was already something that that was happening in the East. Hmm. They borrowed this from the East, specifically from Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, around the year 400, on the night before Epiphany, remember, they're still celebrating January 6th. Okay. Which was really their celebration of Christmas plus the baptism of Jesus and those things they're celebrating on January 6th. What the Christians would do the night before Epiphany, they would go to Bethlehem from Jerusalem and they'd celebrate Mass over the grotto of the Nativity in the basilica that was built by the Emperor Constantine. He built this basilica. By the way, it's the oldest church in the world. Did you know that? Huh. I didn't know. The basilica in, in Bethlehem. And they would have this Mass at midnight. Okay? okay. In Jerusalem. I mean, in Bethlehem. And then at dawn, they'd process back to Jerusalem. And they'd rest a little while and then celebrate a second Mass. Okay. Well, Rome kind of took this over, not for January 6th, but for December 25th. Mm -hmm. So, in the 5th century, after the Council of Ephesus, you know, the Council of Ephesus took place in the year 431, and that's where they declared, you know, Mary as Theotokos, the mother of God. Mm -hmm. Pope Sixtus II built a basilica on the Esquiline Hill. St. Mary Major, Santa Maria Maggiore, mm -hmm. this great, beautiful basilica in honor of Mary as the mother of God. And a side chapel was built in imitation of the grotto of the nativity at Bethlehem. And they called that grotto ad, or that chapel, ad precipe, at the crib. So, the crib chapel. Okay. This became the first mass of Christmas. The Pope would go there. Now he'd still be celebrating the older mass of Christmas during the day at St. Peter's, mm -hmm. but he'd go and celebrate a mass at midnight at St. Mary Major. Kind of like what they were doing in Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Okay. Okay. That's where the custom of the midnight mass began. So the earliest mass was the mass during the day. By the way, we still use the same gospel that they used from the beginning. It wasn't the gospel of the birth of Jesus with the uh, appearance of the angels to the shepherds and all that. The mass on Christmas day, the gospel that they used was from John chapter one. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, this profound meaning of the incarnation, this deep theology of St. John. And even today, that's the gospel that we hear if we go to Mass on Christmas Day. Hmm. Now, the Midnight Mass used the gospel of the Nativity, according to St. John, what's sometimes called the Angel's Mass, because you have the angels appearing to the shepherds and singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men of goodwill. So that was the angel's mass, the angel's announcement to the shepherds. Now, eventually, when we get to the sixth century, we have a third mass of Christmas that was added, and it's called the Misa in Aurora, which means mass at dawn 
or before dawn. Okay. This was sometimes called the shepherd's mass because even today, if you go to the mass at dawn, the gospel is the shepherds at the crib mm-hmm. adoring the Christ child. So it happens right after the angels appear to them. They go to the stable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the gospel for that early morning Christmas mass, the Misa in Aurora, the mass at dawn. So you really have three choices. You can go to the mass during the night, Christmas Eve, and hear the traditional Christmas story, mm-hmm. the shepherds, etc. Or you can go early in the morning, mass at dawn, and hear the gospel of the adoration of the shepherds at the crib. Or you can go later in the morning or during the day and hear John chapter one, the prologue, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So you have those three choices. Uh-huh. It's interesting that we read um, in the writings of St. Gregory the Great about these three Christmas masses. And you might wonder, well, where did they, why did they start that mass at dawn? the Misa in Aurora. Well, the Pope would go to a church near the government palace in Rome, which was called St. Anastasia. St. Anastasia was the church for the officials, the Byzantine officials, because by this time it was an Eastern government who would venerate the martyr St. Anastasia. Well, December 25th was her feast. Hmm. She was an Eastern martyr. But since Christmas took precedence, though she was still remembered on that day, they started celebrating on that day, the early morning Christmas mass. So that's how we got that mass. Okay. So by the fifth and the sixth centuries, we have these three Christmas masses. Then 12 days later, they would celebrate on January 6th, the epiphany, the vigil mass. This is the one, it seems strange to me, but of all the Christmas masses, the one that's most attended nowadays is the vigil, Mm -hmm. which isn't really one of the original masses of Christmas. It only really started after the second Vatican council, when they started allowing these vigil masses. Like when I was a kid, there was no vigil mass. The first mass you could go to was midnight mass. But after Vatican two, they started allowing these vigil masses that would satisfy the holy day obligation just like if you go saturday evening saturday vigil mass it satisfies your obligation for sunday Mm -hmm. now if you read though the texts of the christmas vigil mass if you read the prayers and you look at the readings they're still looking ahead to christmas they're not actually celebrating the birth of christ let me give you an example i'll just read the collect the opening prayer for the mass at the vigil It says, let us pray. O God, who gladden us year by year as we wait in hope for our redemption, grant that just as we joyfully welcome your only begotten Son as our Redeemer, we may also merit to face him confidently when he comes again as our judge, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. So it's talking about our hope Uh and joyfully welcoming. So it's looking forward to that. And then if you look at the prayer over the offerings, like at the offertory, this is what the prayer says. As we look forward, O Lord, to the coming festivities, may we serve you all the more eagerly. 
etc. Yeah. So anyhow, we have these uh, this vigil mass and the three masses of Christmas. There's a great pastoral demand for the vigil mass. It's the way our culture has developed, where the great majority of people go to mass uh, earlier on Christmas Eve. But the first of the masses of Christmas was and is the the mass during the night, and the oldest is the mass during the day. All right, fascinating. Well, people should uh, listen to the readings and pay more attention. Maybe you'll. Oh yeah, the gospel that. at the vigil, you know, is the uh, genealogy. Okay. And then you know, in Matthew's gospel, which is a lot of places, they'll use the shorter version of the genealogy and not read the whole thing, which you know begins with. Abraham being the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, etc. And then the very last part of the gospel at the vigil mass is when Matthew talks about how the birth of Jesus came about. And it has about the dream that Joseph had, where the angel told him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. And basically it says Joseph awoke and did as the angel told him, and he took his wife into his home. And then the last sentence of the gospel is, he had no relations with her until she bore a son, and he named him Jesus. So it's not the story of Luke's, Luke's uh, account of right. the actual nativity. It's, it's this uh, genealogy of Jesus with this explanation of how the angel appeared to, to Joseph. All right. Well, people can go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop to check out past episodes of the show and also to submit your question or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have questions about Mary's salvation, St. Paul's mention of women keeping silent in church, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop who is answering questions that you have submitted for him. Our first question comes from Rachel Brumbaugh from Saints Peter and Paul in Huntington, who said, if Mary was already saved from original sin, why did she need to be saved again through Jesus's death on the cross? Good question, Rachel. Um, Mary did not need to be saved again. She was saved by Jesus at the moment of her conception. As you mentioned, she was saved from original sin. She was preserved from the moment of her conception from any stain of sin. We can call this her preservative redemption. She was mm. preserved from sin. This is the immaculate conception. And this was a special privilege from God and she was free from all sins throughout her entire life. But now how you reconcile that with the fact that we need everyone, including Mary, needs redemption uh, from her son. You know, we speak of the universality of Christ's work of redemption. And Christ's saving death came later. You know, it wasn't, he hadn't died on the cross yet. That's what Rachel mentions. Well, think about the Immaculate Conception. And if you read the language of the, the dogma that was pronounced by blessed Pope Pius IX in 1854, 
he spoke of how the Blessed Virgin Mary, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, and I want to underline this part, in view, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior Mm. of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin. So Mary was truly redeemed by her son, but it was anticipatory redemption. Okay. See, God isn't bound by human time. So in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, and it says the savior of the human race, including the savior of Mary, in view of that, God gave her this grace, this privilege of being preserved from all stain of original sin. So she there, she wasn't saved again, mm-hmm. okay, when Jesus later died on the cross. She was already saved the moment of her conception in view of the merits of her son. Gotcha. All right. Terry Quaich from St. Patrick's Arcola said, I'm a candidate for formation as a third order Franciscan. My formation director assigned the following reading from St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not allowed to speak, but they should be subordinate, as even the law says. But if they want to learn anything, they should ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. That's a quote from St. Paul. When did this practice change? Are there still some churches doing this today? As a Jew growing up, I can picture the Jewish Orthodox synagogue and the division of men and women. Please explain this former church practice and how it changed. Thank you so much. God bless you always, Bishop Rhodes. Thanks, Terry. Wow, your formation director gave you a tough (laughs) passage to to read. Uh, This is is something that, a passage that's been debated a lot, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34, 35. Whenever we look at scripture, though, we shouldn't be looking at verses out of context. We always need to see the context, the broader context, if we want to understand it well. Mm -hmm. And if you look a few chapters earlier, uh, in chapter 11, it's clear that, literally speaking, women don't have to remain silent in church because Paul, chapter 11, talks about women speaking in church. Okay. Um, he, uh, he mentions women prophesying and praying out loud in church. So, the context, though, is liturgical. It can't really mean this passage that we read, remaining silent, it doesn't mean total silence. Because we know that women could could pray and prophesy. So, what does he mean by this? Already we know from reading Galatians chapter 3 that he considered men and women to be fundamentally equal before God. That famous passage, verses 27 and 28 of Galatians chapter 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, St. Paul recognized the differences between the sexes, but always within this framework that they were equal before God, men and women equal before God in Christ. So what, what does he mean then? And this is where the debate comes, because we're not really sure what situation he's addressing. Maybe there was a particular disorder in the Corinthian community 
By the way, there's another passage that's very similar in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Maybe it was that there were some things that were improper that women were doing, um, saying or speaking in, in the Corinthian assembly. There's some evidence that there were some women who were caught up with some heretical movements and they might have been speaking. It's probably referring to not doing teaching that only the ordained could do. Like even today, as far as preaching the homily, even most men can't preach the homily, only mm -hmm. ordained, sure. you know, priests and deacons. Back in the 70s, there was a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and they touched on this passage because that was the document which was an instruction about women not being allowed to be ordained to the ministerial priesthood. And it looked at various passages and noted that some of the passages from St. Paul were like cultural things that could be changed, customs of the period. They're kind of minor things like mm -hmm. wear, wearing a veil and things like that. But when the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith looked at this passage in 1 Corinthians 14, they saw this as, as a prohibition regarding the official function of teaching in the liturgy that you know only the ordained could do because the congregation mentions how paul already spoke about women prophesying in the assembly that's how i think i would interpret it i think it makes sense it's interesting when pope benedict spoke about this some years ago in one of his general audiences he also mentioned the fact that in that same letter to the corinthians Paul mentions how women could prophesy in the Christian community. Mm -hmm. But the idea of what is he talking about, women should keep silence in, in the churches. He said that should be considered relative. He kind of leaves it to the scripture scholars to uh, discuss the problem because they seem on the surface to be two apparently contradictory instructions from St. Paul. So that's why I think, at least from what I've read, that it's really more about prohibition of preaching what we would today call the homily. Okay. All right. Beth Spatiri from St. Anthony de Padua in South Bend said, just read that Cardinal Dolan will not refuse the host to Catholics defending abortion. How can this even be considered acceptable? My heart hurts. This is a controversial question. It's really up to the bishop in each diocese in the sense of it's it's a very complicated question mm -hmm. um there are a lot of people who support the so-called right to abortion that is not an acceptable position for catholics to have and then we have the kind of scandalous cases of certain catholic public officials who actually have voted in favor of abortion and therefore what sanction should be taken well, I'd say, first of all, they should not come up for Holy Communion. Uh, mm -hmm. They're in dissent from a fundamental teaching of the church. Mm -hmm. But how do you enforce something like this? Some bishops will say publicly that pro-abortion elected officials or officials should not receive communion or should be denied communion. Uh, a lot say they shouldn't receive communion, but they would counsel that the the, the priest or the bishop meet with the person first mm -hmm. before denying communion 
and it gets into all kinds of questions of whether the person may have repented beforehand or mm -hmm. whatever. But I think the fundamental thing is someone who is, you know, an advocate for abortion has placed themselves outside of the communion of the teaching of the church, which is so very, very important. And therefore, I would discourage them from approaching the altar for communion. So I hope that answers the question. And as far as the prohibition of or the refusal of giving the Eucharist to somebody, there seems to be some different opinions amongst the bishops. Right. And is that their right to have those different approaches to, to how to deal with well, that? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, cause you're dealing with all kinds of different situations. Uh -huh. I mean, there are some who, uh, who are very publicly vocal right. against the church's uh, teaching on the, you know, on abortion. There's others that may have a mixed voting record, you know, I mean, so you're mm -hmm. dealing with all kinds of different situations and it comes down to interpreting canon. And if the number of the canon escapes me right now, there's a canon, a law in the code of canon law, which talks about not admitting certain people who persistently and are obstinate in their, descent from the faith. I forget the exact words. I'd have to get it right. for, for another program. But um, so it also comes to a canonical interpretation of that canon. Okay. Well, you can ask your questions by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash Ask Bishop. You can text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. Coming up, we have two questions involving baptism right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to respond to. And we had somebody ask, is it true that Vatican II removed the minor rite of exorcism from baptism? No, it is not true that we'd still do a prayer of exorcism, a minor exorcism, when we do the anointing before baptism, the anointing with okay. the oil of catechumens. So we do it in the RCIA, the rite of Christian initiation of adults in a separate ceremony, or if it's actual rite of baptism for children, we have the minor exorcism. If you look at the older rite, it was uh, a much more uh, forceful, quite powerful command hmm. that demons be cast out of the person that's going to be baptized. So because the new prayer of exorcism is pretty mild in comparison, it's, uh, I can read it to you. Okay. 
Almighty and ever-living God, you sent your only Son into the world to cast out the power of Satan, spirit of evil, to rescue man from the kingdom of darkness and bring him into the splendor of your kingdom of light. We pray for this child. Set him free from original sin. Make him a temple of your glory and send your Holy Spirit to dwell with him. We ask this through Christ our Lord. And then you have the anointing with the oil of catechumens. So it's kind of like an indirect, it's still a minor exorcism prayer, okay. but it's it's not as forceful as what was found in the rite of baptism in the older form. Now, the older form is still used. We call it the extraordinary form of the Roman rite. Hmm. Uh, for example, at St. Stanislaus Parish in yeah. South Bend or Sacred Heart Parish in Fort Wayne, they use both the extraordinary form of the mass, but also the extraordinary form for baptism. So just to get a little sense of how that prayer in English, they would do it in Latin. But uh -huh. if you translate it into English, this is notice the difference. The old form was this. I cast you out, unclean spirit, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Depart and stay far away from this servant of God. For it is the Lord himself who commands you, a cursed and doomed spirit. He who walked on the sea and reached out his hand to Peter as he was sinking. So then, foul fiend, recall the curse that decided your fate once for all. Indeed, pay homage to the living and true God. Pay homage to Jesus Christ, his son, and to the Holy Spirit. Keep far from this servant of God, for Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, has freely called him to his holy grace and blessed way and to the waters of baptism. So the minor exorcism that's said in the extraordinary form prior to baptism is is quite um, direct, I guess yeah. I would say. And the one that we use now is is much milder, I would say. So in our regular Roman Catholic churches, could we request the the, the original? Yes. Or would you have to go to St. Stanislaus or Sacred wow. Heart? No, no. To any do the priest, extraordinary any, no, form no, of baptism. Any, any priest can celebrate the sacraments in the extraordinary form. Oh, okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. Like I'll use the extraordinary form when I do the, at the request of our seminarians prior to their ordination as priests, they'll often ask me to bless and consecrate their chalices and their patent. Mm-hmm because they usually get a new or a gift of a chalice and patent before. And they ask for the extraordinary form blessing, okay. which I do. And it's much different uh -huh. because you use chrism. The bishop uses chrism to consecrate a patent and a chalice in the extraordinary form. Yeah. In the ordinary form, there's no chrism used. Be holy water? It's just a blessing with holy water, right? Okay. So a lot of our young men who are deacons going to be priests they saw that and they asked for the extraordinary form. <laughs> yeah. So I said, oh, I'm happy to do that. Yeah. Okay. Kevin Grushik from St. Michael's in Waterloo said, my daughter was baptized Lutheran as an infant and is now a student at Ball State and member of Christian fellowship group there. She says she's getting baptized again next month. Is it even worth doing this other than for an earthly symbolic statement? Now, as much as I hoped she'd become Catholic, I just don't know how to support her. What do I do? How do I teach her the truth without offending her, but support her walk to know Christ in her life, yet protect her from the many false evangelical leaders? Oh, thank you, Kevin. I know it's always difficult um, when our children make these kinds of choices. I understand that 
you know, if your daughter was baptized Lutheran, she was already validly baptized. So getting rebaptized in another church, nothing's going to happen. In other words, she already has the grace of baptism. She's already a daughter of God. She's already a Christian. Mm-hmm. She's already been cleansed of original sin. So being baptized again, it's nothing happens. Uh-huh. Now, I guess how you would approach her about this, I think gently mm-hmm. and with love, try to explain that she's already a daughter of God, that she's already been baptized. And if she still decides to get baptized again, at least you've shared with her the truth about her baptism. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had her, Kevin, had, you had her baptized as an infant. Therefore, you know, I think you can explain that. Maybe she doesn't really know or understand that, or maybe whatever Christian community she's involved with, they have a different idea about baptism that we wouldn't agree with. Right. You know, so I don't know what they think about it. Or even if they know that she was already baptized Lutheran, but if they say, well, we do another baptism anyhow, I don't know why they would. But but anyhow, I think the fact of being uh, patient and loving in their response, but also truthful about the fact that she was already validly baptized. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode and for helping us learn more about the upcoming Christmas celebration and all these questions that you answered as well. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.